Chapter 8 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 8 Pauperism and Crime. The poor ye have always with you, and the criminal classes as well. But the poor can be made few, and the criminals less vicious by proper treatment upon the part of the state. No test of the place a state occupies in civilization is surer than the lightness of its punishments and the care taken of its poor. A pitying spirit towards these unfortunate classes, and not that represented by the grim authority of the law, is that which in the end lessens crime and pauperism, and best befits an educated community. For the end of all punishment, and that alone which justifies it, is not the vindication of the outraged law, but the desired amendment of the offender. Thoughts of the Sages In the old books, periodicals, and newspapers which have been searched for facts throwing light upon the condition of America half a century ago, frequent reference has been found to the comparative freedom of America from beggars and paupers. A writer in Debose Commercial Magazine at this period said, Throughout the greater part of Virginia and Kentucky, pauperism is almost unknown. I passed some time ago the poorhouse of Campbell County, Kentucky, and there was not a solitary inmate, and I have known a populous county in Virginia to have but one, and during a prolonged tour through the states by Captain Alexander of the British Army in 1832 only one beggar was seen. But with many such indications of the absence of poverty among Americans fifty years ago are found complaints that large numbers of European paupers were brought in. Thus, we read in the New England Magazine for 1833 that a memorial was presented to the General Assembly by the Mayor and City Council of Baltimore calling their attention to the evils arising from the influx of foreign paupers. The memorial states that the number of emigrants who arrived at the port of Baltimore in 1831 was 4,381 and in 1832, 7,946 a large proportion of whom were destitute of the means of subsistence. Also that of 1,160 persons admitted to the almshouse in that city in 1831, 487 were foreigners, and that of this number, 281 had been in the country less than six months prior to their admission, and 121 less than one week. The Philadelphia National Gazette stated in 1834 that an active and intelligent guardian of the 
poor in that city has declared that the support of our own poor would be an insignificant charge and that more than three-fourths of the paupers in the almshouse are exported from europe sometimes a whole family will come almost directly from the ship to the almshouse the new york advertiser relates that in the course of the present season eighteen thirty four an austrian armed ship has been dispatched from that country to this with a large number of persons on board who were of a character which the austrian government did not incline to suffer to remain within their own territories and therefore sent them out in the very imposing manner just mentioned and landed them in the city of new york twenty years later there was the same cause of complaint it is related in booth's history of new york that during the winter of eighteen fifty five there was much suffering among the poor of new york who unable to find work paraded the streets with banners and mottoes appealing for aid soup kitchens were opened in every part of the city where the hungry were fed from day to day in the seventh ward alone in one day in january nine thousand persons were fed by public charity not one of whom it may be remarked in passing was an american and now again there is an outcry against the importation of paupers which even yet has not ceased but poverty was not the only charge brought against foreigners they formed a large proportion of the criminal class the criminal statistics of early censuses are so incomplete as to be untrustworthy but mulhall's statement of present facts also represents the case in the past he says it is remarkable that although foreigners compose but one-seventh of the population they supply fourteen thousand offenders or thirty per cent of the total the proportion of paupers to total population is less in the united states than in any other country indeed the difference is so great as to be almost incredible britain has a pauper army of more than a million or one pauper to every thirty-four persons america with her greater population has only a quarter of a million or one pauper in every two hundred of her inhabitants this statement is fairly representative of the differences between the republic and other european nations though in one or two cases the difference in favor of the republic is even greater as will be seen by the following table united kingdom number of persons relieved one million thirty seven thousand ratio to population thirty three per one thousand italy number of persons relieved one million three hundred sixty five thousand ratio to population forty eight per thousand prussia 
Number of persons relieved, 1,310,000. Ratio to population, 50 per thousand. Austria, number of persons relieved, 1,220,000. Ratio to population, 35 per thousand. France, number of persons relieved, 1,151,000. Ratio to population, 32 per thousand. Low countries, number of persons relieved, 1,010,000. Ratio to population, 105 per thousand. Spain and Portugal, number of persons relieved, 596,000. Ratio to population, 30 per thousand. Scandinavia, Number of persons relieved, 301,000. Ratio to population, 38 per thousand. Switzerland. Number of persons relieved, 140,000. Ratio to population, 54 per thousand. Total. Number of persons relieved, 8,130,000. Ratio to population, 41 per thousand. United States, number of persons relieved, 225,000. Ratio to population, 5 per thousand. End of table. Thus, it appears that for every pauper in the United States, there are 21 paupers in Holland and Belgium and six in the United Kingdom. It should be further remarked that of the registered paupers maintained at public expense in America, more than one-third are foreigners. The native paupers constitute ten-hundredths percent of the native population. The foreign paupers, thirty-four-hundredths percent of the foreign-born element three times more than their due proportion. It is gratifying to note that the colored race shows the smallest proportion of pauperism, further discrediting the wild predictions of their idleness and dissipation so common before emancipation. Reduced to percentages of the whole total of each element, the white Paupers are fourteen hundredths and the colored nine hundredths. The American poor law system is very different from that which in England has done so much to foster the idle and improvident at the expense of the industrious and prudent. In many cities, bureaus of charity connect the official with the private distribution of alms, and these often procure work the indigent instead of giving them money. The recipients of relief in America have not been taught to look always to the state for pecuniary help, and the union of public and private charity is useful in maintaining this desirable state of mind amongst the poor. Where paupers regard charity as a right, they are apt to demand it in cases where they would hesitate to ask for favors. The cost of the system compared to that of Great Britain, where $50 million is annually spent on paupers, further commends it.
the Republic spends on its poor not a third as much as England. The causes of the comparative freedom of America from pauperism are not far to seek. In a new country, no one who is willing to work needs suffer from poverty, and there is no class in America content to remain idle. Then the defective classes bear a smaller proportion to the population than is found in old countries, where the conditions of life are harder and lack of proper food and clothing and shelter results in imperfect development. The small proportion of deaf, dumb, and blind persons in the United States is also in a measure due to the healthful nature of the foreign element. Defective persons remain at home in Europe, and only the sound and vigorous emigrate. The potency of this factor is shown by the circumstance that while in the United States there is only one blind person in 2,720 inhabitants and one deaf and dumb among 2,094, in Ireland the proportion is one blind in 894 and one deaf and dumb in 1,340. Private charity does much to remove what trace of poverty and distress there is in America. Orphanages, industrial schools, blind asylums, institutions for the deaf and dumb, and other charities are very numerous and are increasing in number. The census returns show that there are about as many inmates in these as in the public institutions. Charitable institutions classed as miscellaneous, number 430. Besides these, there are 56 institutions for deaf and dumb persons, 30 institutions for the blind, and 13 schools for feeble-minded children. In the treatment of these three most important classes, democracy shows too much advantage. The reports of foreign writers seem to be unanimous in the opinion that in no other country is so much care and attention bestowed upon them as in America. Many of the prevailing improved modes of teaching have been first introduced in the American institutions. Thus, America exhibits not only the least poverty, but also the best system of alleviating it. More than half the distressed within her borders are relieved by voluntary charity, and this is ever encroaching on the fields of state charity. It is a decided gain to the world when compulsory charity, such as annually forces 10 millions sterling from the pockets of the British taxpayer, is placed by the charity which blesses equally him who gives and him who takes. And this is a change which is rapidly taking place in America. It may safely be predicted that with the growing self-dependence which Republican institutions foster, state charities will be substantially restricted to such as have reached beggary through gross misconduct. The close relation which exists between poverty and crime has received verification and repeated emphasis 
since Cadillac first published the results of his inquiries. In England, it has been repeatedly shown that hard times bring increase of crime, and Dr. Meyer has shown that in Germany, a rise in the price of flour is attended by an increase of robberies. Cheap food, on the other hand, is accompanied by diminution of crime. A scientific principle is thus added to sentiment in the song of the English roast beef. The man that's well-fed, sirs, can never do ill. Accordingly, we find that offenses against property are fewer proportionately in the United States than in European countries. The influence of free and universal education together with that of political institutions which at every point inculcate self-respect and stimulate ambition, must be accorded much weight in keeping the republic the freest of all civilized nations from pauperism and crime. Humanitarian progress in the treatment of criminals in America is wholly the work of the last half-century. The present generation will scarcely credit the inhuman treatment which the delinquent classes received during the preceding generation. Here are a few examples, taken from trustworthy sources, which give us the sad picture of the past. During more than 50 years, from 1773 to 1827, the enlightened state of Connecticut had an underground prison in an old mining pit in the hills near Simsbury, which surpassed in horrors all that is known of European or American prisons. The passage to the Newgate Prison, as it was called, was down a shaft by means of a ladder to some caverns in the sides of the hill. Here, rooms were built of boards for the convicts and heaps of straw formed their beds. The horrid gloom of these dungeons can be realized only by those who pass along its solitary windings. The impenetrable vastness supporting the awful mass above, impending as if to crush one to atoms, the dripping waters trickling like tears from its sides, the unearthly echoes, all conspire to strike the beholders aghast with amazement and horror. Here from thirty to one hundred prisoners were crowded together at night, their feet fastened to bars of iron and chains about their necks attached to the beams above. The caves reeked with filth, occasioning incessant contagious fevers. The Prison was the scene of constant outbreaks, and the most cruel and degrading punishments failed to reform the convicts. The system, says the writer quoted above, was very well suited to make men into devils. The prisoners educated one another in crime. The midnight revels were often like the howling in a pandemonium of tigers, banishing sleep and forbidding rest. At Northampton, Massachusetts, a dungeon is described, only four feet high, without window or chimney, 
the only ventilation being through the privy vault and to orifices in the wall. In Worcester, a similar cell was only three feet high and eleven feet square, without window or orifice, the air entering through the vault and through the cracks in the door. This was connected with a similar room for lunatics. At Concord was a cell of like construction, and in Schenectady, New York, it is related that three men confined a few hours in such a dungeon were found lifeless, though afterwards they were revived. Mr. Edward Livingston, the great penal reformer of this country, mentions in 1822 that from 1,500 to 2,000 persons of both sexes were committed to prison in each year in New York City all being presumed to be innocent, and the large proportion really so, and were forced into association with old criminals, eating, drinking, and sleeping with them. Then, after having learned the lesson of crime, they were turned out to practice it. These were the good old times we often hear of but never read about. The barbarity of the punishments which characterized the period immediately succeeding the revolution had been much mitigated before 1830, and the substitution of milder punishments has since gone on with the amelioration of the criminal's life in prison. Surer convictions and lighter sentences mark the progress of penal reform. In a century or two, the most potent deterrent to crime will probably be the simple notice in the press that in the city court yesterday the conduct of so-and-so was disapproved by the jury. A thoroughbred needs neither whip nor spur. An educated man born of educated parents is the human thoroughbred. The progress made in the treatment of youthful criminals is also to be credited to the half-century we are considering. Before 1830, little or nothing had been done to effect a distinction or even a separation in jail between children and adult criminals. The result of unrestricted intercourse between them may be imagined. The boy guilty of a first offense was lost. The veteran in crime became his hero, and he only longed for discharge that he might emulate his exploits. Young girls in like manner were confined with the most hardened women, with similar results. Strange as it may seem to my readers of today, it was not till 1824 that the first reformatory the New York House of Refuge was built. Its influence for good was felt at once, and others were soon established. And in 1874, just 50 years after the initiation of the movement, there were 34 reformatories in the country, valued at nearly $8 million. The average number of inmates was 8,924 while up to that date no fewer than 91,402 boys and girls had been received 
and nearly 70,000 were reported as permanently reformed, saved. These useful institutions are an immense advance on the prisons which preceded them. The youth is no longer confined with the mature criminal. The sexes also are separated. And at night, as a general practice, there is but one child in each cell. Or, if in a large dormitory, the children are carefully watched to prevent evil communications. They are all taught useful trades and have regular day instructions in schools besides religious teaching on Sunday. After their term of sentence has expired, or previously if their good conduct permit, they are indentured with worthy and respected farmers and mechanics. Numerous societies exist in the large cities for the care of destitute children, the best known being the Children's Aid Society of New York, the growth and success of which have been remarkable. It began its labors in 1853 and has provided more than 30,000 homeless children with homes and work in the country. Its lodging houses shelter an average of 600 per night. Its industrial and night schools educate and partly feed and clothe more than 10,000 children per year. Its great aim is to save the vagrant, homeless, and semi-criminal children of the city by drawing them to places of shelter and instruction, and finally transforming them to selected homes in the country, there being almost an unlimited demand for children's labor in this country. The result of these efforts is startling. The commitments for vagrancy in New York City fell from 2,161 in 1861 to 914 in 1871, and of young girls for petty stealing from 1,133 in 1860 to 572 in 1871, the population having increased in the interval 17%. Here is the true point at which to grapple with the difficulty. Right in the beginning, before the innocent child learns the ways of its elder associates. America has not been backward in applying modern ideas in the treatment of prisoners. Her penitentiaries now compare favorably with those of other nations while no nation probably has gone so far in substituting mild for severe punishments. Repugnance to the death penalty is so strong that it has been abolished in several of the states. The large state prisons keep their prisoners steadily at work together during the day and separate them in the cells at night. In some cases, the labor is sold to contractors who pay so much per man, but it is said that this system does not work well as it brings outside influence into contact with the prisoners. It is more desirable that state officials should superintend and dispose of the work. Many of the prisons are self-supporting or nearly so while that of Ohio yields an annual profit to the state. None of the prisons rank higher than that of this state at Columbus. 
In it, the convict may by good behavior diminish his sentence five days a month and may receive an allowance not exceeding one-tenth of his earnings. At the end of his term, if he has gained the full commutation, he is restored to his rights of citizenship. No cruel or degrading punishments are employed and no distinctive prison clothing is worn. The prison library is much used. Sunday school and prayer meetings are constantly attended, and there are 200 well-conducted members of the prison church. In the Massachusetts State Prison, the convicts established among themselves the Society for Mutual Debate and Improvement. Teachers and chaplains are appointed for prisons, libraries provided, and in short, these institutions are conducted upon the idea that it is not so important to punish the offender for what he has done as to improve him, so that he will not be likely to break the laws again. In no department of human effort has a greater change been made for the better in America than in the treatment of the vagrant and criminal classes. How to punish the ignorant and misguided offender is not so eagerly discussed as how to prevent his growing up in ignorance and sin, and thus becoming an offender. Nor does the question how to punish the criminal rank with the much more important query how he can be reformed. This is the first consideration, and he is surrounded with libraries, teachers, chaplains, to save him as much as possible from vile associates during his prison life, and save him, if possible, from himself. In Du Bois' History of Criminal Law, we are shocked to read that in the 14th century, three swine were tried before a legal court and sentenced to death for murdering a shepherd. The whole herd was also condemned as accomplices, and that part of the sentence was only remitted on appealing to the Duke of Burgundy, whose pardon was granted with all the forms of chancery and Beriot Sampri enumerates more than 80 condemnations to death or excommunications pronounced from 1120 to 1741 against every kind of animal from the ass to the grasshopper. To us, such grotesque proceedings in the name of justice are incomprehensible. The next generation or the next beyond will probably read with horror of our inflicting the death punishment upon human beings. Two thousand years ago, Confucius was asked by the king whether the unprincipled should not be killed for the sake of the principled. The sage replied by asking another question. Sir, in carrying on your government, why should you kill at all? Surely it is time for us to ask that question now. It is not the least sign of the Republic's position among nations that in many states the death penalty is already a thing of the past. The civilization of a people may be tested by the character of their punishments. 
The milder these are, the more civilized the nation. As that home is to be rated highest in all the land in which the mildest system of parental government prevails, in which reproof takes its gentlest forms and yet suffices. Judged by this standard, the democracy stands this test well. End of chapter 8. Pauperism and Crime.